This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, this is Sophia Dubois. I write every week in the New European on the music scene across Europe and the UK. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European podcast with me, Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of the New European. If you like what we do and you want to help us keep on doing it, then please join us at the New European co.uk slash subscribe it's 6am you're awoken by a creaking on the stairs and then the kids come in disappointment etched all over their little faces what's the matter you say sue gray hasn't been they wail. we left out a mince pie and sherry for her and everything yes as i record this we're still braced for the report that could change the course of british political history and meanwhile we're feeling a little bit like john cooper clark when he nearly wrote the report is bloody late. You bloody wait, you bloody wait. We're feeling a little bit like the kinks when they nearly wrote, I'm so tired, tired of waiting, tired of waiting for Sue. And while we wait, like many other people, I'm terribly sad about the death of Barry Cryer. I really love Barry Cryer. I've loved him ever since Crosswits, which was a semi-improvised TV comedy panel show in the 1970s in the days when there weren't entire channels of semi-improvised TV comedy panel shows. It was really funny, and uh, as a kid coming home from school, I loved watching that. Barry Cryer also starred in I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue, which is what Boris Johnson originally said about Partygate before we found out uh, he'd actually been at several of the parties. And uh, I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue is also what Boris Johnson said about approving the transport of people's dogs from Afghanistan before we found out he'd actually approved the transport of people's dogs from Afghanistan. And the links between Barry Cryer and Boris Johnson don't uh, end there. Barry Cryer also wrote the 1984 cults comedy horror film, Bloodbath at the House of Death, which I think would be a satisfactory result uh, when Sue Gray's report finally comes out. From the Frost Report to script writing for Morecambe and Wise to radio shows like Hello Cheeky and I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue, Barry Cryer did a lot of his finest work for the BBC. I mean, like Boris Johnson, the BBC is often accused of being bloated, politically wrong-headed, no longer fit for purpose. In a moment, I'll be joined by the New European's John Kampfner to discuss the future of the BBC, a great British institution, and also to discuss the future of Boris Johnson, a Brit that I'd like to see put in an institution. And then I'll be putting more pompous politicians and putrid pundits into our Hall of Shame. First, though, we asked New European podcast listeners what film title sums up 
Boris Johnson's years in Downing Street, and we had lots of good ones, as you'd expect. Neil Smith says, I know what you did last summer. Lisa Gordon, friend of the podcast, she says, catch me if you can. Leydendorf says, porkies. Dan Yule says, repulsion. Rachel McElhaney says, idiocracy. John Bevins says, look back in anger. Kate Kelly, the film title that best sums up Boris Johnson's years in Downing Street for Kate Kelly is The Untouchables. Eva Rivia says, gaslight. And then we have some puns. Claire Nash Thurlow says, carry on lying. Barbara Ann says, lie hard. Rick Ferguson says, a fistful of PPE contracts. Steve Ferrugia says, the usual suspect. And Graham Hoskins says, the man who wasn't there. Iratina says, a crock of shit now. And my favourite of all, Andy Fenton says, the film title that best sums up Boris Johnson's years in Downing Street is Live and Let Die. Now I'm joined by the journalist John Kampfner, author of the bestseller Warum Deutschland es besser macht, uh, Why the Germans Do It Better. He's also the author of many fine pieces for the New European, including one this week on the future of the BBC. Uh, before we turn to your piece on the on the BBC, John, although it seems absurd to speculate on short-term things, let's let's speculate a little about longer-term things. It doesn't look like when Sue Gray's report is finally with us, that exoneration is, is an option for Boris Johnson. It probably means a confidence vote that he'll either win and limp on from, or it means a new prime minister. If he was going to fall, where would you be putting your money? I'm, I'm looking at the odds again this morning. Rishi Sunak, two to one. Trust, six to one. Jeremy Hunt, seven to one. Penny Morden, Tom Tugendhat, Michael Gove, Sajid Javid, all 16 to one. Anyone significant missing from that list? Where's your money? Going? Well, you see, I, I reckon, Steve, that this is still jumping the gun. Mm. Um, not being particularly adept at betting, I've already wagered on, on a German radio show, 30 euros, that Johnson will still be around by Christmas. Um, and I keep my confidence levels go up and they go down. At the moment, I think he might well stick it out. And the reasons are as follows. And I'll come to the runners and riders yes. also. But the reason is, is as follows. Yeah, he won't get an exoneration from Sugre. She's not going to say, oh, you know, well done, chaps. You know, you did exceedingly well. These were work parties and, um, you know, there was only Lucasade in the bottles and everything was fine. She's not going to say that. It's going to be, yeah, really bad things have happened. Systems are rotten. Uh, junior and medium-sized civil service heads must roll, slap wrists all around, we must learn the mistakes. I mean, I've been around long enough to have seen various Iraq war, government um, inquiries and other things. And this is what they do. They go after systems rather than individuals. And a ridiculously um, disingenuous Johnson will very publicly eat humble pie and say, uh, yes, I've commissioned a review of Downing Street and Cabinet Office operations, and I will be much more serious in the future, and I promise I'll always tell the truth and all of that. And I think he'll get away with it. He could well uh, encounter a leadership contest, but he could well win that. And if he's going to win that, that in some ways will lance the boil and give him time. Now, if you were being a double conspiracy theorist, actually, it's in Labour's interests not to topple him. 
uh, which brings us on to the runners and riders. Mm. Because if you're a, a Tory with a long-term view about winning the 2025 or whatever it is, uh, 2024 general election, you would think the best thing you want to do is after this mayhem of the Johnson years, choose somebody different. And this new leader would say, Johnson, who's that? Do I remember him? You know, he's, he belongs to, to another, another era. Here we are, we're all squeaky clean and we're all very different and, and, and that all belongs to the past. So they will achieve an element of differentiation. Whereas if Starmer can associate the Tory party with Johnson for a long time, if he can get all the various leadership candidates and future conservatives to back Johnson, then they are all tarred with the same brush. So that, I think, is why Labour, no matter what they say publicly, are not particularly pushing for this to come to a head. They see merit in Starmer not wowing the populace, but sort of grudgingly earning uh, their respect and that his poll ratings uh, solidify at a reasonably high level. People sort of dump on Johnson, but more out of weariness than anything else. And I think that will put Labour in, in a good position. Now onto the runners and riders. Well, the one who is being the most obvious in egregiously not supporting Johnson is Rishi Sunak. Hmm. Um, whether it's uh, legging it to Devon um, on the day of uh, the last Great Reckoning last week, and literally saying nothing uh, pretty much the whole time and walking out at TV interviews when asked to. Uh, that's his tactic to already put distance uh, between him. And that's incredibly dangerous because, as we know from Blair and Brown, prime ministers and chancellors who fall out, someone's going to lose from that. And it's usually the chancellor if the prime minister sticks around. Liz Truss, however, is taking a different view, which is to shower Johnson with praise, and I'm totally behind him, he's doing a great job. Oh, by the way, everybody, here's my CV. Um, when the time comes, uh, vote for me. So there are two different approaches. And as you say, you've got the moderates in Jeremy Hunt. I can't quite see, even though he was runner-up last time, I mean, runner-ups tend to stay runners-up, and I, I can't quite see it, although he was a very good critique of government during the pandemic. Um, Tom Tugendhat, I think, is a potentially... I mean, if a Conservative Party led by Tom Tugendhat would be a really interesting Conservative Party. As for the others, I don't see... Uh, one you haven't mentioned is Nadim Zahawi, who's mm. definitely on manoeuvres as well. But as things stand, I think it would coalesce between uh, Liz Truss, daughter of two lefty academics, now sort of the reincarnation of, of Margaret Thatcher, or so she uh, likes to think. And having been a Remainer, she's more Levy than the Pope. Um, and Rishi Sunak, who was always a, a Lever, but who's actually a lot more uh, cautious and sensible, and would certainly, I think, on the international stage, calm some nerves. Yeah, I mean, there are some interesting outsiders as well, aren't there? One of, one of them, I'm not sure he would win, but I think he would will probably run, and, and that is Steve Baker, 25 to 1, because as Johnny Bloom said on this podcast last week, the way to, 
to win this contest or to or to go far in this contest is to to prove that you show that you're more Brexity than Boris Johnson. And also, I think there's probably an element with Steve Baker that he's thinking, why why run the government from the back seat when I could just be driving? Why 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 go to all this trouble of uh, of, of making these threats and uh, and uh, negotiating when I could be in charge? Pretty Patel is thirty three to one. That's the a, other one, the he's other like he- a big outsider. Why? Why is does that surprise you? I mean, you know, nothing surprises me when it comes to British politics and and the Tory party. I would say the headbanger in chief is David Frost, who is absolutely wooing the Tory heartlands through the Telegraph. There was yeah. an op-ed um, uh, which was basically the gospel according to David Frost, which is that Tories are in for a 1997-style annihilation if they keep on having no firm views about the economy and low taxation and the small state. I mean, it was a sort of free marketeer's wet dream, this uh, this commentary, which was pretty much ghostwritten by, by David Frost in, in The Telegraph. And he, according to Conservative Home polling of Tory members, along with Liz Truss, is always right out there on the top. So absolutely, I mean, he didn't resign from the government a couple of months ago just to tend to his garden or, or, or to do that kind of thing. He's definitely got ambitions, whether that would be trying for the top job or certainly trying to get himself back into one of the most senior positions in government. And it's curious because this was a guy who, uh, a diplomat of no particular standing was regarded as neither here nor there by the foreign office who suddenly became the rottweiler in chief when it came to negotiations with the eu on the trade deal and on the departure he has absolutely infuriated pretty much everybody that is anybody in brussels and european capitals and the more he does that uh, the happier the tory diehards are with him yes i mean he i guess with him he'd have to he'd, he'd... You know, there'd have to be some. He could become the leader of the party, couldn't there? There'd have to be some machinations then to bring him back from the the House of Lords. So, um, yeah, but you um, could but do, you can do that. And I mean, a seat was found for. I mean, he, yes, Boris, Boris Johnson wasn't in the Lords. A seat was found for him very easily. Yes. Uh, after being mayor of London, you no, know, these things, you know, where there is a Brexiteer will, there is a way. Absolutely, Steve Barclay is another one. I don't think you can uh, you can rule out. It's a hundred to one which is the same odds as, as Theresa May, is we me. have, we've got one of the, the it's not you, it's one oh. of the current Prime Minister's staunchest defenders, it's Nadine Doris, who oh. obviously has prompted your piece uh, on the BBC in the New European mm. this week. Um, she prompted that with the, this licence fee freeze that's ultimately going to lead to large cuts in, in what the corporation does before it faces a future presumably without any licence fee. Nadine Doris gets a bad press, I, I think wholly deservedly. Are there any credentials to suggest that Nadine Doris is, is being a good culture secretary, fit to be a good culture secretary? What does a good culture secretary look like, first of all? How long have you got? The answer is the no. The first answer um, is no, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, Nadine Doris is about the only top-level politician, and that's a strange phrase to put that all together, um, who makes Boris Johnson look credible and non-clownish. I mean, every time you think you've hit rock bottom with British politics, some somebody else pops up. Now, I mean, yeah. she, she is, you know, I remember all her sort of 
Looney Tunes stuff under David Cameron and, and Theresa May. She is not a serious figure. The poor souls in the arts and the creative industries and broadcasting have to sort of doff their caps to her in the DCMS, not to mention the civil servants who are tearing their hair out. No, I mean, the whole problem with the DCMS and with the arts creative brief in Britain is, you know, as it used to be called, the Ministry of Free Tickets. You know, it's the it's the place that you're either a sort of fiercely ambitious person clambering their way up and they usually want to spend less than a year there before they move on. And in that year, they want to do a couple of sort of uh, very media friendly initiatives or they're on their way down and they're not that fussed anyway. Uh, and it's a real reflection, I think, just by the by, uh, of the extent to which, I mean, the creative industry is one of the fastest growing sectors in the UK, 100 billion quid to the economy. And it's always got a minister, or not always, there's been some really good ones. People like like Chris Smith was uh, a really good one, Tessa Jowell. And even though it's incredibly unpopular to say so, Matt Hancock was a good um, culture secretary when he was there. Well, I mean, a comeback for Matt Hancock would be, uh, that would be an incredible thing. He's, he's when was the last awesome. time, Steve, anybody on your podcast has ever said anything nice about Matt Hancock? I have no idea. It's There's like, always a first. It's always a first. When she announced a couple of weeks ago that we're heading for this licence fee freeze, probably the end of the licence fee, I mean, people reacted to, to, to that by saying, well, this is a something that's obviously been under discussion for a long time, but it's been thrown out now as some kind of dead cat to distract from Boris Johnson's troubles and the... Uh, and then obviously we heard from Tim Davey who who said that he you know he, there'd been yeah. discussions but he hadn't been expecting that how how, no. how true is it that it was it, it was just thrown out there unexpectedly well it it was and it wasn't i mean absolutely she you know she hadn't there was no sort of lead up to it she just sent a, a series of tweets over that particular weekend oh by the way i've decided that's the end of the license fee so on one level that just looks ridiculous however when Tony Hall, Tim Davies' predecessor as Director General, was negotiating the previous charter um, with the government, and, and um, they, they go in 10-year increments. In fact, Tony Hall did an 11-year one for some quirk. I remember him saying to me privately, and it was very much sort of what they all thought, this may well be the last such licence fee settlement the BBC is going to get. So the fact that the licence fee, as we know it, is very much all across Whitehall being looked at in a sort of legacy way and people thinking, uh, well, maybe, you know, there should be state provision for the BBC, but shall we not do it in a different way? Um, that much isn't, isn't new. So Doris um, sprung it on them in the way she did it, but it is... Um, as Tim Davey was saying to people, and as I was writing in my piece, the BBC itself is working hard at looking at various models and flying various kites, and they're going to launch a public consultation on what they, because they know that if they can't bring the public along with them, they're toast, whatever political party is in power, on what to do next. How are... How are some public state broadcasters funded in Europe then? I mean, presumably they'll be looking at that, won't they? And, and do any of them have the ambition and the scale of the BBC? 
Oh, well, some of them get more money. The German uh, broadcasters, uh, the top, the, the first two channels, ARD and ZDF, they operate from a license fee system. I mean, not, it's not identical, but it's similar, which actually charges people more. It's 159 is the current quid, is the current uh, British one. The German one converted is about 200 quid. And you must say, I must say, the, I mean, the quality is dire. Of, of German telly. I mean, when I was first went there in the mid 80s as a, as a young trainee journalist and I was watching the main evening news, I thought it was boring and old fashioned then and it hasn't changed, you know. And the, they, they had this awful sort of uh, crime show who done it thing on a Sunday night that's been going on, you know, probably since the 18th century. You know, they have some very good uh, politics TV chat shows. But the, and so they have some good documentary program, but the, the general standard is, I mean, it is just so boring. And it, it's the same de- demographic shifts as anywhere where younger people are, are looking elsewhere, but the wheels of change grind more slowly. I mean, it's always more difficult for European countries, particularly in terms of uh, selling to, to selling yeah. on their product because of the quirk Mm -hmm. of the English language, Um, you know, the Brits and and the Americans have that. But I mean, you know, the the digital providers, Netflix, Amazon, Disney Plus, whatever, they're all over the European uh, markets with, you know, producing some very, some some dross, but also some very good shows in Germany, in German, in French, in Scandinavian countries uh, and, and whatever else. So in some ways, the marketplace isn't very different. The French uh, take advertising, which accounts for just under ten percent of revenue, along with a a state license fee tax uh, for for the main broadcasters. So it's a bit of a mix. But actually, I mean, as Tim Davies says himself, the BBC is already a hybrid. Mm. Uh, it earns loads of money from uh, BBC Studios, its production arm, uh, which produces for anybody that wants it. <laughs> BBC Studios produces for ITV. It produces for BBC, it produces for Americans, it produces for anybody um, that wants to buy their stuff. If you watch BBC World TV um, in uh, obviously outside the UK, that's got as much advertising, you know, in the middle of news bulletins and programmes as, as CNN or anything else like that. And Tim Davy came from Pepsi um, and a very commercial background. He's got a, knee, a new-ish COO, who has uh, come from Centrica. The chairman, Richard Sharp, sort of Tory donor, um, but at least he wasn't Charles Moore, comes from Goldman Sachs. So he he likes to point out to government and to anybody who listens that the BBC is already becoming quite a commercial op- operation. In terms of how the, the, the funding funding models then for the future i mean we've got i wanted you to read to read to you a couple of things that our listeners have said on facebook about this and get your take on them ellie wilkie sub- said subscription it should be this should be a subscription fee uh paul mahoney says introduce advertising abolish the license completely reduce bbc staff wages Jessica Norrie wants to keep the license fee uh, and she says that only when we lose it, only when we lose advert free TV will we realise how wonderful it was. Um, Kevin Moore proposes a tax on commercial TV and radio stations, um, which I'm sure would go down well with them. Uh, Reduce TV license fee, 
attacks on sporting commercial TV rights when not including free broadcast on the BBC of highlights. Uh, and then we've got Jarvis Brand, who, who said, and this is interesting, you know, he says, if the argument is that the BBC's output provides a social benefit, then that should be funded through by the government through general taxation. Uh, and then, you know, documentaries on insert your favourite subjects here are a social benefit. Charging hundreds of pounds for soap operas that some people choose not to watch is not a social benefit. I'm happy to pay taxation for social benefit, but not to support a business that could be self-supporting in a free market. What's, I mean, what's your, what are your thoughts and what are the thoughts emerging out of the BBC about what, how that funding would look, that funding model would look? Well, that's a pretty impressive and wide array of viewpoints. And that does seem pretty reflective. And the Beeb has done a lot of very um, detailed quantitative and qualitative surveying of readers, um, I'm sorry, viewers and listeners that, in a way that I certainly haven't. But at the first glance, that does seem very representative. I mean, there's all kinds of options on the table and they all have advantages and disadvantages. And it was interesting when David Dimbleby uh, you know, the great doyen of BBC election coverage, question time and all of that now pretty much retired. He popped up on the World at One a, f- a few days ago and was slagging off the licence fee on a B programme, which was interesting, but not because he thought it as a principle was a bad thing. He said it was uh, one of the most regressive mm. taxes that you can find. And he is absolutely right. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Tim Davian, his lot, would, would agree with that. It was interesting that nobody... Um, uh, attacked David Dimbleby, it almost felt as if almost if he'd been put up to, to say it. But I mean, it's absolutely true. Somebody who's wealthy pays exactly the same amount as somebody who's in really dire straits. And that can't be right. So I think there will definitely be a change. And the idea that this is going to stay as it is, I just think is for the birds. And I don't even think the BBC is going to try. So will they go for, uh, there's all kinds of things. The problem with advertising in the UK market, as opposed to internationally, uh, according to Beeb figures, is that it's a finite resource. And the people who would be most upset about allowing the Beeb to take advertising would be ITV and Channel 4 and, and other outlets, because the argument is there's only a certain number of companies that want to advertise their wear on TV, and that's what they're doing now anyway. It's interesting, or do you increase the market? I don't know. So I'm not sure that is going to fly. I think further commercialization of BBC products around the world. But I think you will end up with some sort of hybrid as follows. You will have a universal tax. The problem with general taxation, by the way, is that A, it doesn't give the BBC distance from the government. And also it doesn't give stability because we all know the tax rates in any budget with a flourish, you can increase them, you can decrease them. And you know, the BBC does need a sort of 10-year settlement in order to be able to plan. So I don't think it will come out of general taxation, but I think you may end up with this, that you'll end up with a tax or a levy, probably through the council tax. Um, So in other words, rated according to the bands, and it will be lower, and it will be for core BBC services, news, current affairs, um, non-commercial products like sort Mm. of of non-commercial music, various other radio, local radio, local TV, all that kind of stuff that you can't really commercialise. But again, that will be variegated on the basis of how wealthy people are according to the council tax. That's one option. But then you could subscribe to BBC top-up services. 
So, you know, whatever it is, BBC Premium, you get Strictly and this and that, and you get Saturday nights on BBC, and obviously they'll assume loads of people will want that kind of thing. You know, BBC Super Premium will give you various sporting things and, and that sort of thing as well. So in, it, they will go in some way down a subscription route, but they're incredibly keen to protect those bits of the Beeb that they know that people might appreciate, but they wouldn't necessarily pay for. I mean, it does seem like the, the conclusion is then that, that however it's funded, in, in 10 years, the BBC is, is going to look slimmer, I guess, and its ambitions are, are slight, or its scale or, or its sweep is, is, are reduced somewhat. So what do you think is, is going to go? What's, what are the, what's the BBC going to stop doing or not be able to do anymore just to, first of all, to afford this, um, this licence fee freeze, which obviously is a cut in real terms, and then to, um, to prepare for the future? Well, I mean, on the freeze, I mean, you know, for as long as, I mean, I've worked at the Beeb for several years. My wife has worked at the Beeb for about 150,000 years and, you know, loads of friends. You know, every single um, time you've ever talked about the Beeb, probably since it was it was established, everybody always says morale is rock bottom, BBC's in trouble, you know, etc. And that's always been the case. And that cuts, I mean, you know, I do get a little bit, this is where my sort of inner free market person comes out. I get a little bit fed up with BBC people talking about how sort of beastly their life is. So I say, well, have you ever worked in Fleet Street where, you know, one day, you know, you could be hauled in and, you know, the black bin, bin liner is given to you and you're out the door 20 minutes later. I mean, you know, you know, welcome to the real world. Um, BBC journalists have always been pretty feather bedded. Um, so, you know, and every time you think of BBC cuts, um, you know, they're refurbishing another executive's office suites. And, you know, so they are still pretty profligate in terms of the way they they finance themselves. And, you know, Tim Davies says, well, you know, if we freeze the budgets, we'll have to show more repeats. Well, I mean, does it matter if you show some more repeats in, you know, if not in prime time, then then, in, you know, that's obviously what BBC Sounds and iPlayer is anyway, just watching things when you want to watch them. Anyway, so I think there's a lot of stuff that could happen without, you know, I think there's a lot of problems with the BBC that go far beyond finances. I think it's becoming more and more insular. It's becoming more and more English language base. And it's sort of, uh, it's becoming the small island that Britain is also becoming. And, and that may well be costs as well, cost savings in news, which I think is a real alarming trend. So I think some of that, uh, will happen as well you know what will happen with BBC4 BBC3 that kind of thing um, you know it's all up for grabs but in a way you know the politicians keep on sticking knives into it the Tory press have been sticking knives into it for as long as I've been around I mean literally every day you will find stories in the in the Mail Times and the Telegraph attacking the BBC but in a way they're kind of used to it now but I think the biggest danger but in a way, to use corporate speak, also the biggest opportunity is, is technology. Mm. Because, you know, I mean, viewing habits, you know, the, exp the explosion of new technologies over the last five or 10 years, it can be exaggerated. People still watch TV. A lot of people still watch it in an old fashioned way by sitting in front of it and switching it on. But, you know, a hell of a lot of people don't. And, you know, I think it's, um, 
you know, I mean, the licensee is just a mechanism. It's not some great sort of prize or anything else. It's a mechanism. But as long as we keep the BBC as a great international institution, it doesn't matter if it's funded a little bit differently. That seems like a good place to uh, to leave it. Well, thanks to John Kampfner. To read John on the future of the BBC, pick up the new issue of the New European Issue 277, available now uh, to read more from John and get full access to his online archive for us. Please subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. John Kampfner there. So uh, a couple more thoughts for you on BBC funding. Uh, Rob Monroe says the BBC could be funded from the glass deposits from number 10 parties. And Sally Bruce says the BBC costs approximately four billion to run each year. Get a, fu- a refund from Dido Harding. That'll cover us for the next decade. Very true. Now, before the Hall of Shame, our usual reminder of something that isn't shameful. In fact, it's rather brilliant. Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives podcasts. Uh, Two seasons are available now. Charlie Connolly tells the life stories of amazing Europeans in short 10-minute bursts. A superb listen. It's available where you got this podcast. And now time for the Hall of Shame, where we put putrid pundits, pompous politicians, things that just annoy me generally. Let's start with the Daily Mail, who have got a big hot take on the political issue of the moment and to give this the importance it deserves I'm going to read it out in full. Angela Rayner has ditched her trademark curls in favour of a poker straight set of hair extensions to show off her confidence and personality, a stylist has revealed. Labour's deputy leader, who is known for her unique sense of style, uh, usually opts to wear voluminous hair extensions to add length to her ginger locks and curls them into a distinctive bouncy style. However, earlier this month, she debuted a new look in the House of Commons when she appeared opposite Boris Johnson at Prime Minister's Questions. The 41-year-old MP for Ashton under Lyme straightened her extensions for added effect and length, meaning they almost reached her waist. Angela opted for the same look against yesterday, yesterday as she took to the dispatch box with celebrity stylists telling the Daily Mail there is a sense of playfulness about her new style. On it goes. Uh, So everyone who uh, has been waiting with bated breath for the Angela Rayner hair report can now breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, Boris Johnson is in the Hall of Shame this week, not for what you think, but for the fact that on the day when the EU reported they were making progress in talks with Liz Liz Truss and a new, more sensible atmosphere was now in play, uh, what did Boris Johnson do? He said the EU were insane and pettifogging uh, about Northern Ireland. Just a reminder there that the Brexit wing of the Conservative Party are out of control, will never allow a sensible Brexit. One more reason why we shouldn't attempt any sort of Brexit at all. Boris Johnson's defenders are in the Hall of Shame. It's hard to know what was more absurd this week. Therese Coffey saying she's not aware of any parties in Downing Street. No TV licence uh, or radio for her, clearly. Uh, Connor Burns said that at Boris Johnson's birthday party, the Prime Minister was ambushed by cake. Um, I did want to mention uh, a special mention for Crispin Blunt, uh, the MP for Rhyming Slang on Sea, Crispin Blunt. He said, inside most homes and inside most businesses, people may not have kept absolutely to the rules. Well, I I think, you know, that is completely um, untrue, isn't it? And absurd. Uh, 
But, you know, when it comes to absurd stuff from Crispin Blunt, he also said this um, in the same sentence. He said, no one is suggesting that if the prime minister had been caught speeding, that he should be sacked. He shouldn't be driving himself in any case, but let's try and get things into perspective. Help! I've lost control of my own analogy in the fast lane, and now the wheels are coming off. That's what uh, Crispin Blunt should have said. But there could only be one biggest loser in the Hall of Shame this week, and in a minute you'll know why, and so it's time to say, Alack, Egad, Harumph, it's Anne Widdicombe Corner. In her terrible column, in the terrible Daily Express, the terrible Anne Widdicombe writes... Charlotte Briggs tells of more than two decades ago when she was a maid in Buckingham Palace and Prince Andrew summoned up, uh, her up two flights of stairs just to close his curtains. It is sad and private. Kicking a man when he is down is not a good look, Mrs Briggs. Yes, let's not forget who the real victim is here. It's poor old Prince Andrew suffering and uh, people are spreading tittle-tattle about his curtains. But there's more Anne Widdicombe. She also writes this. Various theories have been put forward for the chaos and confusion caused by Boris's disregard for rules, a slump in the polls and various acts of overt and covert treachery. There are merits in these theories, but personally, I blame Tony Blair. Yes, she blames Tony Blair for everything that has gone on over the last few weeks. And uh, I think that on the grounds of sanity, we will have to leave it there. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to you all for listening. Thanks to our producer, Ellie Longman-Rood. If you like what we do at the New European, please support our work by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. If you don't want to miss an episode of this podcast, you can subscribe. Give us nice ratings and lovely reviews wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll tell you what else you should listen to. It's Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives. You can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow The New European on Twitter, at The New European. And you can follow me on Twitter, at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. And until the next time we meet, so long, snowflakes. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.